we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Hello, I am Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. As Bain Capital put it, 2021 was a banner year for private equities healthcare acquisitions. In addition to hospitals and nursing homes, physician practices have become hot, hot targets. Over the last 10 years, private equity firms have moved on from buying physician staffing companies for specialties like mine, anesthesia, and then emergency room and radiologists, the hospital-based people, the so-called rape specialties. Now they're broadening their net to include dermatology, ophthalmology, urology, orthopedics, women's health, and gastroenterology. These private equity firms' main focus is on efficiency, productivity, and short-term profits, certainly not the patients. Many physicians left independent practice, were kind of like, great, buy my practice, because they wanted relief from the administrative aspects of private practice. But guess what? They found that they became fungible, income-generating drones in a healthcare system. And patients, they're paying more out of pocket for their care with less physician choice and in some cases, lower quality. A new study, brand new, looking at 1,400 acquisitions from 2014 to 2019, found that compared to non-acquired dermatology, ophthalmology, and gastroenterology practices, the acquired practices not only replace more physicians with more malleable ones, no doubt, but many were replaced with non-physician clinicians. The question arises, does this improve access for patients or decrease quality, or is it a little of both? Among many reasons, commitment to science and helping patients heal is why we wanted to be physicians. Sadly, with this new landscape, physicians are becoming less satisfied with the practice of medicine. Many are retiring early. Nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants are all valuable parts of the healthcare team. But does this mean they have the requisite skills to practice without physician supervision? And are they the primary answer to physician shortages? My guest today is a fierce advocate for patients and physicians, and we'll discuss solutions to the physician shortage and access to quality medical care for everybody. Dr. Nicole, she goes by Nikki Johnson, is the past president and a co-founder of Physicians for Patients. That's an organization that champions physician-led medical care it seeks to increase the number of practicing physicians and advocates for transparency of the credentials of health professionals. 
She received both her undergraduate medical degrees from Case Western Reserve, and Dr. Johnson is certified in both general pediatrics and pediatric critical care medicine. She's a contributing author of Free to Cares, a physician-led roadmap to patient-centered medical care, and she advocates for children in the world of COVID through the urgency of normal organization. Welcome to the show, Dr. Johnson. Thank you, Dr. Singleton. Well, I'm just having me. (laughs) Well, I just thank you for taking time out of all of your advocacy to come on the show. I'm going to ask you just right off, why'd you become a doctor? Oh, I always love that question because everybody has such a different story <laughs> to what led them there. Um, I, I, the, believe it or not, the <laughs> I, I was a kid who grew up in an inner city, never really had any black physicians ever, or you know any kind of. I, my parents were not college educated, so it was not something that was on my radar growing up that it was something that I could be. Um, but I did have parents who were. Um, who, who valued education um, completely. My grandfather, my, my dad's father was a school teacher actually um, and taught all of his kids in a one room classroom. But so education was a huge priority in our family. So we knew we were going to college. Um, had a stepsister who had uh, sickle cell anemia. And uh, she told me that one day I told her that I was going to grow up to be a doctor and figure out a cure for sickle cell disease. I had, I don't remember even thinking that. <laughs> That's a funny <laughs> thing. Uh, my first memory of thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up was to become a, a train engineer. I wanted to conduct the trains. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the weirdest thing ever. I don't know. So the, 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 um, so, you know, as I grew up and, you know, started to become more educated, um, in, in school, I've, you get to that point where you start to think about what it is you really want to do in your life. And for me, my story was great. Was was uh, started with television. Believe it or not, it was watching The Cosby Show growing up. Um, watching Cliff Cliff Huxtable work as an OBGYN in his home, and his wife as an attorney. <laughs> And having a family of five kids. And uh, I knew I, I kind of wanted a big family. I never ended up having a big family, but I wanted a big family. And I was just enthralled by this, this Black family um, who were were doing things that I never imagined. And then at that point, I realized I can do that too. I'm smart enough. I can do this. And as I went through undergrad, um, I really strongly considered a career in medicine. I really wasn't sure what else I was, I wasn't really interested in much else. Um, so I, but I did tinker around with a few other things. I liked mathematics. I always liked math and science. Um, so I knew my major was gonna be something science related um, or math related. Um, and I tinkered with a couple of different major options, but I kept getting led back to medicine. There was just something um, uh, uh, that always continually drew me back to medicine, where it was some, someone I met said, oh, you should be a doctor. Um, or I, you know, I just like hitting, kept hitting roadblocks going in different directions and it kept flinging me back towards medicine. And that's where I landed. 
Well, very good. I bet you also found out that you couldn't be like Cliff Huxtable and sit around home all day. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. right. (laughs) How far apart are the contractions? Okay, I got to go in now. (laughs) I mean, I thought of all things an OBGYN and somehow he never worked. Right. <laughs> right. Oh well, but like I my husband and I always say when we have one of these uh conundrums, it's like, hey, it's a TV show. It, yes, yes, yes. And my 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 intro to real <laughs> OBGYN uh work came early on in my first year of medical school where our program had um a, this track where you um we got introduced to our clinical diagnosis skills and physical exam skills very early on in the, in the first year. And so we shadowed a um, family physician in their medical clinic, picked a patient who was pregnant, and we followed her throughout her pregnancy and then attended the delivery. Mm. And then we also helped to take care of the child. Once the child was born, we became their pediatrician along with our family physician. And so that was my unique experience, having to go and be the first person that the my patient called when she started having contractions and to be able to relay that message to um, the, the attending doctor who was working with me, go into the hospital and stay throughout her labor um, and this was her first child. So that experience being in the hospital as a first year medical student, uh, clueless about how long the process was going to take, um, was definitely exciting at that point. But the, that just tedious waiting mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that went with it, like <laughs> Bill Huxville didn't do that. He no. went in, he went in and the baby and Cliff Huxville went in and the baby was, you know, popping out. So <laughs> Well, I think knowing what we know now about Cliff, the real Cliff, I wonder why he picked being an OBGYN. Then he'd learn more about how he could drug women and have his way with them. But I digress. Now, Now, hearing this story and, you know, we're laughing. Medicine is great. It can be fun. It can be so rewarding. What is happening? Why? Why are physicians getting so discouraged and many of them retiring so early? What are what are some of the things that are, you know, going into this problem? So, you know, there <laughs> there are a, a, a huge variety of reasons reasons, and this has been something that has been in the making for many, many years now. This isn't just some new phenomenon that um, people are hearing um, because of the pandemic. And going through my own story um, has has helped me to understand a lot of it too. But I would say probably about 2016, 2015, 2016-ish, I started becoming active on social media. And I began to notice that a lot of doctors were complaining about some of the same things that bothered me about medicine. Um, I really, really loved my career. Um, and I, I, similar to you, my, my career, I, my, I did a 
pediatric critical care residency and fellowship, which means for the people who um, don't understand this, this part of the training, once you finish medical school and you go through your residence, your, your training to become the specialist you want to be. I did a few things before I got to the, the, the career path that I really wanted. So um, I took a really long route. I did internal medicine and pediatrics residency. So I trained to do adult medicine and pediatrics medicine to be able to be board certified in both of those. Um, I ended up choosing um, pediatric intensive care so that I could work with the most vulnerable, really sick kids inside the hospital. Um, and sort of also deal with those uh, adolescents and young adults so I could use some of my um, training in internal medicine to help these critically ill um, young adults as well and children who were starting to develop adult diseases like metabolic syndrome, um, all obesity-related illnesses. Um, and and um, so that was, that career path led me to, um, you know, doing it, uh, intensive care, which is a really long and rig you know, rigorous route. So I, th at this point, I am seven years in, um, you know, it's post, tr post, post medical school. And then um, once I became an attending working as an intensive care specialist, I was you're spending nights inside the hospital. Um, back when I trained, the attending attendings were not spending nights in the hospital um, for intensive care. And, um, and particularly where I train, even as a resident, I didn't have attendings in the house with me. And so as an attending now, I am, in addition to having all the responsibility of taking care of all the patients, I am now inside the hospital. And it just started to become progressively more and more things added on to um, the lifestyle of a physician. And I was never one to complain. I always felt like it was a blessing for me to become a doctor. I felt like I, uh, it definitely was my calling, my true place, my true purpose. I'm a spiritual person. I'm, I'm a Christian. And um, that for me is, you know, a big reason that I went down the path that I went um, as well as all the other stuff we talked about. Um and so I I didn't complain. I rolled with the punches. You know, it was rigorous. Medicine is is tough. It's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be for the for the people who are very bright and dedicated, um, and people who want to learn and want to truly help people. But it was starting to become more tasks to do, more boxes to check, um, than it was me spending time with my patients and their families and really interacting with them, building relationships and actually making an impact in their lives. And um, being in an academic center meant you also had to have to train you know, residents and medical students, which I enjoyed doing as well. But those responsibilities also come with check boxes that you need to check for the medical school, uh, for the academic center and to, to, to maintain your credentials, all of those things. And it just began to, to mount. And then, um, so I decided that I was just going to do um, pediatric procedural sedation, which is functioning like an anesthesiologist, like yourself, but outside of the operating room. So I would, um, give children medications like propofol to help them sleep while they were getting procedures like MRIs or some painful procedure like an abscess, 
you know, drained or a colonoscopy um, or, you know, biopsies and things like that. Um, various things. Absolutely loved what I did. Love, love, loved it. But then I started, <laughs> the administrative tasks started mounting and I was finding that I was enjoying, um, still enjoying my patient interactions, but everything else was overshadowing all of that. And to the point where I did not enjoy going to work anymore. And I, when you look at, um, you, we're hearing now a lot uh, of people describe all of these signs and symptoms as burnout. Um, you're feeling weighed down, depressed. Um, the administrative tasks become a burden and um, you're doing less of the actual patient doctor um, interaction that you wanted to med you know, med medicine for in the first place. Those are the, the big reasons that physicians are dissatisfied with the career right now. Um, also, you know, being an employed physician meant that I'm pretty much beholden to do, uh, follow the rules of my employer. So there are things that I can say, cannot say, can't, you know, publicly um, can do, um, say, you know, say something happens and this child got sedated for uh, the procedure didn't necessarily you know, go, go through and we needed to repeat the procedure on another day. I couldn't just say, um, I don't want this child charged. I actually have to go through multiple people to get approval to, to not have that procedure charged to this family. So there's no direct physician, you know, <laughs> caring and billing. We don't even know how much the hospital is billing for our service. Well, so, uh, that that's yeah. a good place to stop mm -hmm. uh, for the before we take the break. And I think you point out a very important thing that there's so much between you and the patient with the bureaucracy that the whole point is having a doctor-patient relationship, not with all these basically middle people at so many levels. And we'll, we'll get into that a little later after the break. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. 
So, back to Dr. Johnson talking about this big gap, really, in the doctor-patient relationship that more and more bureaucratic tasks and bureaucracy, the idea that she wouldn't even know what the patient is being charged. And this point has come up in other shows, the idea of payment. There is a time if a doctor, and I mean, you can still do it now, if you aren't signed up for government programs or in some sort of healthcare system, that the doctor could just make that decision. I'm going to charge you. I had to do it twice. I'm not going to charge you for the second one. I'll only charge you for the materials or whatever. Or like my father did, he charged people what they could afford and could do things in barter and in trade. I mean, it was a whole different world. Now it's considered fraud if you don't charge people. So there's something about that that preciousness of the relationship that's just drifting away. So I'm going to ask you, Dr. Johnson, what do we do about it? Yeah, uh, so... <laughs> That you know that because that's such a huge part of of burnout. It it does mean that the doctors do need to start taking control over the system again, and we have allowed for decades for all of those intermediates to make the make the decisions so that we could just practice and take care of our patients. That's all we wanted to do. We wanted to leave the business part to other people. And unfortunately, that got away from us. And so we we now have to right the ship. So we're faced with uh, aging physicians who are retiring. We are also faced with uh, physicians of all age groups who want to leave the practice of medicine. They're considering early retirement. Um, those are even under... Um, age 55 are considering early retirement to do non-clinical positions. Um, others are leaving the, the employment scene to do direct care, direct primary care, which I'm sure you talked about plenty of times on this, on this show. Um, so they're leaving those employed positions so that they can actually go back to those basics and take care of the patient. Um, and they are finding or recapturing that joy way that they're practicing medicine. But in specialties like mine, um, it is very difficult to do that um, and, and be successful and actually make a living. Um, you know, just keep in mind that, you know, we are human too. We still have to, um, I still have, you know, over $60,000 in my student debt from medical school to pay, to pay off. Uh. And I have a family, I have teenagers, I have a husband who's going to be retiring from his job soon. And he's not a physician. Um, so my salary is very important um, to our family's well-being. And so we still need to make money um, and, and, you know, do the things that we, we love. So we need to run a practice and pay other people to help us and, you know, buy the things that help, you know, help us take care of you. So those are great options for people who can do it. And I'm, you know, completely encouraging that. But that's what we're seeing. Um, and we're also seeing um, just, uh, you know, physicians just up and leave. I mean, just last year, there was a report um, that over 100,000 do doctors are just walking away. And um, with the um, 
ACGME's um, projections that they they they've been using for the last few years um, on doctor shortage. Um, we were about 122,000 physicians um, projected to be 122,000 physicians short of back in 2030 anyway, and now that's increasing, and and that is something that has increased. Um, almost exponentially over the pandemic. And so a lot of the problems that we're seeing um, that are causing doctors to be dissatisfied um, with the career all were either brought to light or magnified during the COVID pandemic. Um, and so that, that's not something that we can fix, you know, you know, instantly, but there are several things that we can at least do to try and help uh, one, doctors be more satisfied with the career that um, they've chosen, want to stay in it, um, but also, you know, want to become doctors and practice in those areas where patients are um, desperately needing access to good quality medical care. So we talked about... Um, <laughs> we've, we've talked about the direct primary care piece and, you know, that is doctors who are, you know, really working independently, um, divorcing themselves from third party payers insurance and practicing um, in a way that allows patients to have uh, really a lot of flexibility um, in their, in their care and their prices. So these, you know, doctors can, um, charge a membership fee and see you um, contractually so many times per month where um, you're that you're guaranteed to see the doctor. Good luck now trying to get a single appointment just for a well care <laughs> appointment with a regular doctor under your insurance plan. So, you know, it, direct primary care is very attractive. Um, there are also some doctors who are doing type of, uh, you know, specialty care and some of their their services are actually actually online and you know convenient um now over the pandemic since we've learned a lot um, about telehealth and tele telemedicine and how well it can work for some people and some specialties that they are taking advantage of that um just um it, you know a great example of that it was even for me I actually got diagnosed with sleep apnea um several months ago my husband told me I was snoring like crazy and I would wake up completely exhausted, had no idea why. Um, and I did a home, I was able to do a home sleep study test through a website. Um, and then you, uh, they look at the report. Everything is all remote. They look at the report. A doctor goes over the report and then has a, um, a physician assistant discuss the findings with you. And um, and they come up with a plan together on, you know, what the recommendation is if, if you know, if you do have sleep apnea and then uh, it's all done. It was all done. And I paid through everything with my healthcare savings account. So, I mean, that that is an innovative way to get someone good and, you know, effective medical care. Um, it's not for every single service, obviously. And um, and I'm sure those physicians, you know, are 
feeling like they went to school to learn sleep medicine and they can actually do something and <laughs> and yes. actually you know do something with the patient and it's in a and it's a very efficient system um compared to what it is now where you have to get approval from you know the insurance company for the 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 machine and to do the sleep study and where you have to do when my husband did his he did it the regular way and did it um he, he got den- the place he wanted to do his sleep study. It was denied by the insurance company. He had to do it in another place. So all of those things um, are can be made simpler by the innovative ways that you know physicians and and um, healthcare professionals are doing it now. Well, it's um, kind of like it lets a doctor see a problem and take care of it. That's yes, that's kind of how we <laughs> right? are. It's, well, right? it's. Interesting because, you know, it's still hard to get into medical school. Lots of people still want to be doctors. And then we've got a lot of medical schools graduating, but they don't, as they call it, match to a residency. So what? There's a few thousand people that don't match. What happens to those people? So those people basically have to go find a job somewhere else. They don't really have a place um, for them to go. So you've got people who are now hundreds of thousand dollars in debt. They were bright enough to get into a medical school, um, but somehow they didn't match to um, the program that they, they wanted to. Now, now, granted, you and I know that there are people who went to medical school who probably shouldn't be taking care of patients in person, but they should, their talents can be best used in a lab, you know, doing some yes. research or doing some <laughs> clinical research, right? But we all knew the, someone like right. that. Right. That's few and far between. There weren't that many of those. Everybody was bright in our class. They were, you know, qualified. Obviously, they wouldn't have gone to medical school, been been accepted to medical school if they weren't really qualified. If you made it through, then, you know, you deserve to get a shot. So these thousands of doctors that are sitting out there waiting for residency positions to open then have to find something else to do. Many of them go into kind of postdoctorate positions, something something that they can get paid and pay off these student loans, um, but also still allow them to apply for residency the following year. But um, several years ago, some very bright doctors um, decided that um, that they would start what they call the um, assistant physician um, license, and this started in Minnesota where um, they were able to actually, no, sorry, Missouri, um, they were able to actually get a license um, in the state of Missouri to assist another physician who was licensed and board certified, where they were acting much like an apprentice, uh, very similar to the way medicine used to be <laughs> training when, yeah. you know, many, many, you know, and that kind of back, back in the beginning. And then they, in the meantime, they still continue to try um, to get into a residency program, but they are practicing and they're able to serve and serve and serve patients um, that way. So there's, there's also, there's a couple of different organizations that were started um, that, um, that support those doctors and that they can join. There's the American Society of Physicians and there's also the Graduate Assistant um, Physician um, Organization too. Um, the American Society of Physicians is actually in um, a, a member of Free to Care. And um, those are the people, you know, the contacts that I know pretty well. So their, um, their website, if anybody's listening is interested, is AS 
physicians.org, um, AS physicians, all kind of in one word, .org. And you can contact them and sort of, you know, get the support there, find out what's going on. Um, as, 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 a, as I was last made aware, there are about six states who do have this license, but in states, there are, there are many, every state does this differently. Of course, this is a state level issue um, to issue the license because we all, oh, we all know your professional license does come through a state, um, you know, certifying body. Um, and so there's, there's definitely some things to fix here. There's some people have concerns that these are doctors who will never end up going to residency. Um, why we get concerned about that is because initial board certification is, is associated with your, um, you know, ability to deliver quality care to patients. And that's what we want. We don't, we don't want people out there practicing who aren't, um, you know, who are delivering quality care. So we, we want everybody to have that same standard. That's why we went to medical school in the first place. So we do want that. Well, who pays for medical residencies is, is it come out of Mm -hmm. Medicare? So how does the federal government involved in these residencies? So yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's the thing. So graduate medical education um, is paid for um, through the Social Securities Act, and um, that funding was capped in 1997. And so Congress needs to Congress is the one who sets the appropriations for um, medical funding. Um, this is always a really tricky subject because as 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 a conservative, I don't want the government to really be the solution for everything, but there are some things that the government needs to be involved in. We need doctors, we need physicians, we need um, people to be healthy, to have a functioning, healthy society. And in order to do that, we need the experts. We are some of the most brilliant minds on the planet in the United States. And the innovations that we have here and the quality of care here is excellent, despite what we all hear about our horrible, you know, about you know, having a horrible healthcare care system. Um, so we do, if, 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 if that has been appropriated by Congress for, for decades, it needs to be appropriated by Congress now. And the, why there's a cap on it when there's no cap for the rest of the federal budget is beyond me. <laughs> so we, well, we, we, we raise the debt ceiling <laughs> over and over and over well, again. It's a matter yeah. of priorities. You know, yes. that's why you cringe when you read some of these lists of what the money goes to. <laughs> right. Residents do the work and not yes. only are you working hard, obviously you're learning and that's where you get your top notch skills. Yeah. And, you know, they're always an expression about, you know, and, Depending on how tired you are, you would think, oh, there's no good case after midnight. But in reality, all the good cases come after come midnight. After. Yes, they do. Yes, they yeah. do. And, and on that, the weekend at the wee hours. <laughs> that's of the exactly morning. right. And the residents are the ones that's 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 the, where the term resident came from. These are people who are living in the hospital, who are, you know, <laughs> who are, are serving yeah. patients um, 24-7. The attending physician is there in a lot of places now, particularly in critical care. Um, but really, for the most part, the residents are doing are the first responders is what we call. It. And they are doing right. writing the orders and uh, following up on problems and seeing the patients first. So um, they do do the, you know, uh, the, the bulk of the work. 
Um, and they need to train and they need to train by taking, that's, that's how you, you want quality doctors, um, by getting them that experience. So we have to be able to pay them. Um, is there a way to private, partially privatize it? I don't know. That's where the geniuses are going to have to come in. That is not my area of expertise, but I would love to see someone come up with some ideas where we could partially privatize it. Um, but, um, but we need to do it in a way that we sort of have control over the training too. So that's, that's the other, that's <laughs> the well, other part of. of well, it's very interesting because in the hospital and that's of course where residents train, um, there are certain things in the hospital that are overpriced with the justification that that pays for non-clinical work. Like somebody has to pay the people who clean. They they don't generate income. The cafeteria, that generates its own income. So there's a lot of non-income generating things around the hospital. But the way I look at it, the residents are generating income. So there ought to be yep. a way, even as within the hospital, to help pay their yes, salaries. To, comp to compensate them. And, and you and I both know <laughs> um, that when the hospitals start to cut back on services because of um, financial concerns and budgetary concerns, the first people who get cut are those services <laughs> mm -hmm. that don't generate income, but very much so contribute to the inner workings of the hospital. When you have to, as a um, physician and staff office, end up having to to change your own trash and, you know, clean up all the spills in the middle of, you know, trauma season and things like that, it starts to add up to the things that... <laughs> It, it, those people make a, a make a doggone difference. And when you want to go to sleep, when you get that 30 minutes to go lie down in the middle of a very long shift, very busy shift, and your bed's not made, or your shower's not clean, your toilet's not clean, and it's a disgusting mess, and you have to go and grab your own linens, clean off the bed, all of that stuff, that is, that is demoralizing. It, that just it just shows that how much we devalue the people who actually do help in ancillary services around the hospital. Um, so those people need to get paid. <laughs> those are important people too. What they don't cut though is the um, <laughs> is the number of administrators oh. who are making up all the rules and don't aren't involved in any of the patient care. Well, you see all. those graphs where they have the number of actual patient care workers versus administrators and the administrator rises exponential as the yep. patient care workers are just sort of stay even. Well, yep. when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about some other issues that have arisen out of the physician shortage. And uh, for now, I just want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. And like you know, we're always a beat ahead. We have our free apps on Apple, Android, and Alexa. You can hear Pulse every weekday at 5 with an encore at 11 p.m. That's Eastern Time. And on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. The thing I love about it is all shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours. 
And the episodes are on lots of podcast networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. Make it easy. Bookmark AmericaOutloud.com forward slash Pulse. One of the other great things I like about Pulse is that there's a different doctor every day. I'm on on Mondays, Tuesdays, we have Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley, Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Out Loud, Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan, and Fridays we now have Dr. Harvey Reich. There's also a show, Nurses Out Loud, and that's on Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern. So lots of medical stuff out there for you to listen listen to, and you can take your pick. And I love the show. I listen to some of the other folks, and I hope you will too. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. So, back to what we do about getting medical care to everybody. Now, I had mentioned this with regard to the private equity in my intro, that the private equity people, whose bottom line, just like this incredible behemoth of administrators, all they want are efficiency, try to save money, and quality of care for patients is somewhere down the line of the list of what they're looking for. In some cases, quality isn't even on the list. And so they've replaced many of the doctors with nurse practitioners. And we all know nurse practitioners have extra training, but is that the same as going to see a doctor? Ah, that, that, <laughs> that's a fantastic <laughs> question. And it's always one that brings the heat, but you know, I say bring it. 
Um, let's just go back to <laughs> how this became a, a, and I'm putting up my 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 finger quotes uh, a solution to the physician shortage. Um, someone got the bright idea that phys- that physicians can be substituted uh, by or replaced. Um, by nurse practitioners, it's um, particularly in primary care. Um, In 2010, the Institute of Medicine that actually recommended that um, we increase the nursing scope of practice so that they could fill these gaps um, from physicians. So when the the Affordable Care Act was passed, um, this particular um, recommendation was used um, to promote the expansion of the scope um, of nurse, um, well, what they what what they call themselves advanced <laughs> uh, practice nurses, um, APRNs, they go by different names, or really nurse practitioners who are, you know, RNs who then go back to have additional education, um, initially started off with the master's degree, um, but then now is primarily a doctorate degree. And using those clinicians to actually go and fill gaps where uh, where physicians are um, are needed. When the Affordable Care Act came out, they knew that they were going to expand insurance access to millions of people, um, but they knew that we did not have the number of people we needed to take care of them and provide that primary care um, access. So there, instead of including any measures that would um, boost (laughs) the number of physicians graduating from medical school, residency training spots, they decided to um, take money to promote and enhance um, degrees in advanced nursing um, for this very reason. And after that, um, so the Affordable Care Act um, passed in 2015, And as of um, one year after the Affordable Care Act, the number of nurse practitioner certificates nearly doubled, more than doubled. And so we're at the point now where that um, they have really um, saturated their market Um, from 2017 to 2018. They grew about 9%. And then they, I mean, they really are oversaturated that to the point where, Nurse practitioners who are coming out of training are are like scrambling to look for physicians who will um, they can shadow, um, looking for places to actually work. And many of them now are starting to go back into work as registered nurses, um, particularly during the pandemic where we needed a lot of nurses and um, hospitals were scrambling to get nurses so that they were paying extra money for traveling nurses. Um, um, to come in, you had those nurse practitioners who didn't have jobs going back um, to fill those positions. Um, but even before the pandemic, um, all of these nurses who came out uh, were were going into practices. Some of them were in rural areas where we needed them to be, but the majority of them were actually practicing in places where doctors already were in the urban centers. So um, the, one of the things that I did, like the American Amer- Medical Association, which I'm not a member of, but they did have a nice tracker map um, where they were actually mapping the number of um, nurse practitioners and where they were practicing. And they have this nice visual 
um, um, with that's like, you know, where, where you can just see dots all over the place where, where the nurse practitioners are and the physicians are and, and rural America is just white. All of the places mm-hmm. where they said they were going to practice, um, basically they're not practicing. Many are building practices where they're doing um, aesthetics um, and, you know, cosmetic dermatology, you know, these the same high profit things that the doctors do well have they done studies that show that the having the nurse practitioners be the substitute does it save money at least So, so here's the issue so this is this data has been very difficult to find um since they've been actually now 29 states um, and, and plus um, the District of Columbia um, and uh, in some of the U.S. territories all, allow nurse practitioners to actually practice unsupervised by a physician. And that is what they mean by when they say expand their scope. That, that means they don't need any physician oversight at, at all. Um, and, and granted, there are some negatives to the, the way that some states do the physician oversight. Um, it is very lo- loosely um articulated in the legislature and, and and each state. Each state manages it very differently. Contractual agreements are between the physician and the and the practitioner that they are supervising. Um, so lots of holes in, in the way that was practiced. And there are definitely, you know, not all good physicians are good people. There are people who were taking advantage of situations and, and, you know, employing, you know, multiple, you know, nurse practitioners and not really being much of you know being present and having them do all of the work and really you know getting their bulk of the pay for it um so they weren't really treating them fair so they did you know put us in a position where the nurses were you know hey like look i'm doing all the work why shouldn't i be getting paid the same as you do or why shouldn't i be able to practice by myself but what they did was to argue this they used literature um where they were comparing their uh, either patient satisfaction or very, um, uh, you know, you know, uh, select markers of patient outcomes, like say A1C, um, or, or blood pressure control for patients. But while they were in a practice being supervised by a physician. And they were using that data to say that, look, we are just as good as physicians. Our quality is, you know, is better in some cases. Or they were comparing it to, you know, residents who were training um, (laughs) in in Mm -hmm. certain hospitals. Um, They weren't really, um, they weren't really being sincere with their, um, with their data. Now, I, I will say that the CRNAs who are these, you know, certified registered nurse anesthetists do have a little bit more literature um, where they are practicing really solo for the most part, because a lot of states have granted them that ability to practice by themselves, um, you know, without an anesthesiologist present for, for many more years. So they do have, you know, a little bit more convincing data that they can be safe um, in their practice. Um, but that is just, they do actually have a lot more rigorous training than the um, traditional like primary care nurse practitioners who really they go through um, rigorous in-classroom study. And then they do these clinicals where they have to have so many hours working with a physician where 
they don't, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to see so many patients of this type or this diagnosis. Um, and you're not necessarily prescribing, you're not necessarily actually thinking and, you know, being supervised while you're doing it. You could just be watching the physician do it. It's very loose the way the training goes, but CRNAs do actually have a lot more, um, detailed and structured training and, and the number of hours that they are required um, to practice before they can actually go and take care of patients on their own is very different. So the literature, they conflate the two and they <laughs> to, to try to say that it applies for every single um, nurse practitioner specialty. And they can flip-flop. They can say, one day I want to be a, a, a primary care nurse practitioner. Well, no, maybe I'll do endocrine today. And then they'll go and they go shadow an endocrinologist and they take their, you know, get their certificate and then, you know, they're off. Um, so <laughs> uh, it, it's just so loose. But well, now they, it so seems they really like... don't have that literature, but we have a few yeah. things that we can look at and we can see that, yes, that they are, um, they are, they tend to be spending more money um, by referring a lot more. Um, a lot of our data is anecdotal on here uh, on this too. So um, this is something that physicians for patients, um, and then there's another organization who does this too, um, been trying to clamoring to get this data. And we could particularly be asking uh, for this information from the VA, but this is like, you know, you know, pulling a, a, a wisdom tooth from an 80 year old who's in the ground and it was an impacted wisdom tooth anyway. So, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, it's just like, we're never going to get this information. So um, unless we have somebody inside of the government who's willing to give us this data and we can actually, because they've been practicing the longest without physicians, you know, supervising them, where we can actually directly look at patient outcomes um, compared to um, independent, you know, licensed and board certified physicians. That's really the goal. The gold standard is that a, a physician who has initial board certification, not a resident, not, <laughs> yeah, and you know, and not somebody who you know who maybe just graduated med school, you know, you know, residency and is out in their first year. Uh, we really need to be practicing, you know, comparing the two. Um, so we've seen that they order more tests, they order more diagnostic tests, more imaging, um, more uh, more lab tests, and then they will have the patients come back much more often um, to kind of check on things. And they certainly refer to subspecialists a lot more. So we've seen a lot of dissatisfaction from, um, subspecialists. Um, so that is, um, so would love to have some more rigorous studies and data um, to support all of this. Um, but, um, it is, it, you know, along that combined with the fact that they're not really filling the gaps that they're saying that they they're going to fill makes this all pretty much a, a big scam on uh, on Americans. And the people who are going to suffer the most from this are the people who are the most vulnerable anyway. Um, well, the so thing that bothers me is even nurse practitioners, uh, seasoned nurse practitioners are criticizing the recent grads because they're just getting a diploma from a diploma mill and not going through any shadowing of anybody before right. suddenly they're doing clinical work. And that's just not right. Yes. Yes. I know a number of um, nurse practitioners who were when they, when, when they first became, you know, a sort of a very popular 
field and recognized field were actually coming out in and and spending hours in a very subspecialized area. Um, so when, just an example, when I was a resident, we had a nurse practitioner who was responsible for our diabetic maintenance. And she was amazing. She would get people to, you know, help you know, work on their diet and lifestyle changes and, you know, a, work on a, with a targeted A1C. And these were the, you know, not so complicated, you know, patients with diabetes and like multiple other com- comorbidities. This was diabetes was their one thing that they focused on with these patients and they were amazing. And that saved me time that I could actually, even as a resident while I was training, I could focus on my more complicated patients um, taking care of them. And I could refer a new diabetic um, to the nurse practitioner who was in our group. And she would manage that with the attending physician's oversight and the patients got incredible care. These, These nurse practitioners also served and worked as registered nurses taking care of patients in clinics or in hospitals at the bedside for many, many years before they did this. So they were highly experienced as nurses number one, before they decided that they were mm-hmm. going to go into this. And they weren't coming out of nursing school saying, hey, I want to go and get my doctorate and, you know, be a nurse practitioner. And then saying that I'm out and I can be better than, you know, you, or I can take the place of a physician and and have the same skills. What, what is also little known is that nurses have their own type of diagnostic um, uh, language that is very different from physicians where you and I would have see a patient with a certain set of symptoms. We would ask, you know, more details about that, um, do our physical exam, put all of that information. And we would form something that's called a differential diagnosis, where we would go down a list list of things that are most possible, um, you know, to least possible, but all the things that we could imagine that would explain this syndrome that, that the patients are describing and that we're seeing. Nurses don't have that at all. They have like a sort of a systems-based type of um, diagnostics where they they learn like a, a few words of things. They don't have that same process where they're kind of really thinking through and um, and tr- and trying to problem solve. Well, Doctor Johnson, you have told us a lot of things, and we all know. Everybody is so essential to the health care of everybody, and we want everybody to have great health care. And next time you come on, we're going to work on some solutions to the problem. But for now, we're going to have to sign off. And I thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me so much. It was the time flew past. <laughs> yes, it did. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And just remember, we do have our feature of questions. You can send them in to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse, and you can ask the host or one of the guests, and we'll try to get an answer for you. And uh, when you send the email, first names are fine. And um, we've got a lot of questions, and we're very happy to answer So thanks again for listening, and remember, whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud, I'm free and I'm proud.